0: In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wonderful, wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. It's episode 100 of Notably Disney. What a celebration. I've been producing this podcast for the past three and a half years, featured an array of notable authors, musicians, composers, songwriters, podcasters, and other notable Disney personalities as well as a mix of rising stars and legends in their respective industries. I can never quite articulate the joy and satisfaction in having this podcast as an outlet to share undiscovered stories, celebrate great elements of the Walt Disney Company, particularly around music and books, of course, and engage in a mix of intellectual discussions alongside amusing banter about a variety of Disney topics like what are the best funniest uh, quotes in Walt Disney World as you recently heard in my conversation with Tammy Tucky now I ruminated for weeks on what to plan for this milestone episode and what I kept coming back to was that I should engage in a mix of two activities one share some podcast reflections and prov- and then two provide a review of a recent book release I'm getting too ahead of myself let me just stick to the script um, and and so in in terms of examining a recent book that debuted, I came across Chronicle Books, The Art of Lightyear. So you'll hear that a little bit later. But just like my very first episode in early 2019, this is a solo show. So just my voice, and I hope you enjoy these reflections and that review. Now, let me first share a few, notably Disney podcast statistics that may be fun to discover. While listeners from the United States account for the lion's share of people who tune into notably Disney, there are folks from all around the world uh, among the most popular countries and regions outside of the United States include Canada, the United Kingdom, Taiwan, and France. The most popular episode to date based on number of downloads is the Disney sing-along songs Rewind with Book of the Mouse Club's Emily McDermott and Courtney Guth. The most frequent guest that I've had on so far is none other than seven-timer Aaron Wallace, who you know is the author of Hocus Pocus and Focus. I have interviewed composers across all branches of Disney, from theme park and film composers like Richard Bellis and Pinar Toprak, to TV work like Jake Monaco and Christopher Willis for Disney TV Animation. I have brought on people associated with Disney Theatrical, like Elton Fitzgerald White, who played Mufasa in The Lion King, and then even an author on the subject of Disney theatrical that was Dr. Amy Osatinsky. Legendary authors like Jeff Curdy, Jim Fanning, Dave Bossert, Mindy Johnson, Marcy Carricker Smothers, and more have enlightened me on their recent book projects. Disney podcast staples like Lentesta and Dan Heaton dove into Walt Disney World books with me as we shared our favorites. I have spoken with people whose work I have admired since I was a child, including composers Bruce Broughton, John Debney, and Harry Gregson-Williams. Most importantly, though, I've made a bunch of new friends in the Disney podcasting community through this journey, several of whom I've met in person and brought on. Some special people in my life to participate in those very popular trivia episodes. Notably, Disney represents a fun part of my life that complements the sometimes very serious and intense nature of the research that defines my academic professional side. And of course, you know that I bring in some of that quality into the podcast at moments, but it's really just so awesome to tap into my Disney knowledge, fandom critique, and interview skill sets through this space. At this point, I wanted to share a bit of the origins of the podcast, how it's evolved, and maybe think about what's next. So if you listen back to episode one, you will get a little bit of context to who I am as a Disney fan, lifelong of course, uh, someone who's been able to tap those interests in a variety of ways from writing for entertainment websites for about seven years. um, And that proceeded my uh, time in developing this podcast. Uh, it extended to actually writing trivia cards that were used in the Disney Pictopia board game, which was quite the unique opportunity to say the least. Um, I've, I've really engaged with Disney in a variety of ways, even if not officially, um, but it's been really, really cool to be able to lend my insights and perspectives uh, and knowledge uh, across different platforms over the years, and in that way, the you know, the age of the internet and social media has been such a blessing for so many of us. Um, it also becomes challenging to be able to disaggregate what is information that's verifiable and uh, completely accurate versus speculative, and and that has been a tricky space to navigate as as a consumer and a producer uh, in tandem, but what really amounted to me developing this podcast. And if you listen again to episode one, um, all the way back, you would get that uh, context of that I just wanted to do something new. I had um, taken about a a year and a half absence from writing about Disney online, and I love those outlets. Um, But as someone who writes all the time, given my career as, as an academic, I wanted to kind of branch out and do something different, and podcasting seemed like a really viable medium, one that was long established. Um, certainly we know that the earliest Disney podcasts came onto the scene around 2005 and some of them still are in existence from those early years. And I was, was thinking about, well, in what ways could I contribute to this space? What could I do that's different? Um, that really honors my interests and proclivities. Music and books felt very appropriate. I was certainly familiar with and a fan of Book of the Mouse Club. Um, I also didn't want to be too duplicative, even though there are moments when we might interview the same author or review similar titles. Um, And that's where I wanted to bring in both my passion for books, but also uh, Disney music, which may manifest at times on different podcasts, but is not a central theme, so to speak. Uh, So, Notably, Disney, the title uh, emerged from this notion of notably uh, a p- play on words, so to speak, with the notes of a book, notes uh, with music. And, and I think there are certain overlaps at times that have been really fun to explore. And, you know, there are moments when I knew that I would not be limiting the podcast episode to music or books uh, and you have seen over the years how I've diverged from that on a few instances, but uh, that was going to be my foundation, and that's a way to complement the number of different Disney podcasts that focus on Disney news and what's happening at the parks, and those are all great, um, and I, some of my favorite podcasts are ones that engage in really great interviews with Disney people, so I knew that I wanted that to be in the fold, so I'm not sure exactly what my expectations were at the beginning. I knew I wanted to generally produce a couple of episodes a month, and those of you who have listened for a while know there were some uh, some months in the uh, first couple of years of the podcast where I actually uh, produced an episode a week. Those were uh, meant to be uh, limited instances, but uh, that has enabled me to reach this 100-episode milestone at this point. Um, had it not been for that, we would probably... Um, only be in the 70s. Uh, so it's been really cool to have been able to develop so much. Um, I knew I wanted to do interviews. I knew I wanted to bring on other podcasters. I also knew that it would be difficult at times to secure people, especially if I'm not necessarily a known quantity or, or someone who's uh, perhaps as well-connected as certain other folks in the Disney community, those who have been uh you know, filming YouTube videos in the parks or already have had uh, very popular Disney blogs or podcasts. So um, in some ways I felt like I was entering this space as an unknown and I still feel like, um, you know, this is a, a, a very crowded space. But I was excited to do this for myself and if other people uh, enjoyed it or listened to it or, or could get something out of this too, that would be great. And for me, I knew interviews would be a really viable mechanism because that connects back to my journalism background, and it honors the fact that there are a lot of great people in the world of Disney whose stories and experiences have not always been highlighted, or certain aspects have not been explored in as much depth. I also wanted to play into that uh, idea of covering fun topics that relate to music and books. So... The earliest episodes of notably Disney, I was really just reaching out to um, you know some various people whose work I had come across or been familiar with. So like Maxwell Glick, I watched his YouTube channel for a while. Um, uh, I was uh, I've been good friends with a great podcaster and writer Trent Vactor for a number of years. Star Wars has been his bread and butter. And so he was my very first guest as we talked about uh, our top 10 Star Wars film score tracks. And that was a really nice foundation to build upon. Um, it was very soon after that that I was interviewing authors, like I mentioned Dr. Amy Osatinsky earlier. Uh, Chris Lucas uh, had was just debuting his top Disney book review. And uh, it was episode nine when I brought on uh, Emily and Courtney from Book of the Mouse Club. Uh, as we covered the Yesterday's Tomorrow book by Don Hahn. Uh, we did a book review of that and that uh, established a really uh, nice podcast podcaster friendship um, and I've gone to meet uh, Courtney in person I've talked with both of them a number of times. They've been uh, guests uh, many a time on the podcast so it's been really cool um, to establish uh, myself in that space and getting connected with other Disney podcasters and Lentesta was uh, definitely a, a, a big win for me to be able to get him on and a very uh, wonderful person, very informative and, and very gracious too. Um, and that's been definitive of so many people who have been on the podcast, just very giving of their time and interested and often saying, well, that's a good question or I haven't been asked that before, which is gratifying for me. Really early on in the podcast was uh you know it it was leading up to the d23 expo in 2019 which i was super excited about um as someone who hadn't been uh in six years i went to the first three and i knew i wanted to uh, capture um, as much of it as possible i also needed to be mindful of limitations in terms of that you know i i'm not a video blogger here i'm not trying to film everything Um, I did create a playlist on YouTube featuring a number of presentations that I found uh, that were recorded, which was really fun, but I I knew I wanted to uh, attend uh, panels that related to music and books as well as other stuff, and so that allowed me to catalog all of that uh, across several episodes and, um, and, and bring on some people who attended the expo as well, including Uh, Aaron Wallace, who I met, and who consequently became uh, a friend and someone who uh, participated in a series of Epcot-based episodes with me, which was really fun. Um, I'm just so thankful I had that expo experience because it further reinforced my passion for Disney. It allowed me to connect with others. Um, And um, yeah, it got me excited for future projects from Disney to be there when Obi-Wan Kenobi was... Uh, announced with Ewan mcgregor leading that was wonderful or to be among the very first people to see content emerging from disney plus uh, and and hear about the future of the disney parks uh, i it's hard to describe that feeling it's one thing to see it uh on you know on your computer after the fact via videos but to be in a room that's just so energized by the release of information it's it's really indescribable and hence it makes me disappointed to not be able to attend D23 Expo um, this September because I've loved the event Um, but I am starting my faculty career right now um, getting resettled so unfortunately I will be uh, consuming all of it as an eager viewer from afar but that first year of Notably Disney was great in terms of establishing some uh, elements of the podcast, the, the mix of interviews, bringing on guests like Aaron Walls to talk about uh, a to- common topic, and we dove into books and music related to Epcot. Um, I, some of my favorite memories from that, that first year included um, bringing on the songwriters and uh, people behind the Toy Story the musical on Disney Cruise Line which is a topic that has not been documented very much and I felt like served as a really great space to share those stories and the origins. Um, I started the Tunes and Quotes game show and I've had a number of different editions um, since and there will certainly be a matchup between the uh, semi-finalists or the finalists I should say from uh, the most recent iteration so um, that, will, that will happen. Um, so, that is something to look forward to in the future. Um, and what was also really great was that I was able to uh, make some connections with Disney Publishing and bring on folks who were debuting books from um, Disney editions. So, talking with Imagineer Christopher Merritt around the time of the release of Mark Davis in His Own Words, the book he co authored with Pete Doctor, was such a thrill. I was over the moon about that. Um, to have a, a really in depth conversation with a Disney Imagineer about a topic that I was uh, very much engaged in. What a gift. Uh, toward the end of that first year, I also interviewed composer uh, Jeff Cricka, who uh, was the composer behind the Imagineering story, the amazing docuseries on Disney. Um, and, you know, he hadn't really done a ton of interviews. Um, At that point, he had worked with some greats like Michael Cicchino and others, and kind of coming into his own, and it was such a thrill when um, uh, months later he had informed me that, hey, the soundtrack is available to purchase on uh, on iTunes, and I was uh, definitely among the first to get that because I was such a fan of his work. Um, Into the second year of the podcast, uh, I continued to do much of what I had been, uh, reaching out to folks, both big names and more up and comers, and it amounted to having some great conversations. It was uh you know, the beginning of the second year when I interviewed Gavin Greenaway, the composer of Illuminations Reflections um on Earth, um from Earth, excuse me. And I was just just over the moon about that because I mean this is someone whose work I had known since I was a kid. And so as a result, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm pinching myself. I'm talking with Gavin right now. Um, so Illuminations, Reflections of Earth was you know, a cornerstone of my Disney music uh, repertoire, and I, I really appreciated his time. Uh, this was also around the beginning of the pandemic, and um, it didn't necessarily change my pace in producing episodes or my desire to engage with folks. I I had uh, conversations with, uh, oh gosh, so many folks. Alton Fitzgerald White, I mentioned his name earlier. Um, uh, Todd James Pierce, a great Disney author. Um, I mentioned folks like Bruce Broughton and Jeff Um, the The filmmakers behind Howard, the Howard Ashman documentary, Uh, Don Hahn and Lisa Korngiebel. I was really glad to be able to chat with them. I know they were making the rounds of media interviews, and I feel like I hopefully covered some stuff that was not necessarily mentioned elsewhere. Um, But I just, it was just so fulfilling to continually get connected with various folks, often through um, past interviewees recommending folks. Um, So you know, talking with J.B. Kaufman um, and Didier Getz, um folks who are well-renowned in the Disney book world, um, really just elevated my excitement for conducting these interviews and having these conversations. Uh, Jim Fanning, who's been on now many times, uh, was just such a great person to talk with. Um, as we, you know, we, we covered a lot of different ground um, over the years. Now we've talked, uh, we've had several lists, including... Um, favorite forgotten um, Disney songs and so much more. Um, entering year three of the podcast, oh gosh, just even more fun. Uh, one of the best times was the 101 Dalmatians, the 1996 version, music uh, reminiscence with uh, Robert Elhai, Brad Warnard, Christopher Brooks, and Stephen McLaughlin. Um, I, I, I always refer to that episode as like being at the pub with a, a group of old buddies because they were just having a blast thinking about their time on that project. Um, uh, composer Joseph Trapanese, uh, we talked about Lady and the Tramp and Tron Legacy. Um, that was really cool. Um, uh, and the, the team of Christopher Willis and Elise Willis behind Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway and the many Mickey Mouse shorts, they were just absolutely delightful to talk talk with and then once i finally rode the attraction um i i fell in love with it even more the nothing's gonna stop us now song um i talked with uh rafael thibode from uh, secrets of the whales that was the national geographic documentary that debuted on disney plus um she was delightful to talk with i mean so many people um Matt Hodge, the author of Cool Cats and a Hot Mouse, uh, Disney and Jazz Music, um, covered in a book. Uh, a great reflection of how music and books have combined on the podcast in terms of particular episodes. Um, and then more recently, in this fourth year of the podcast, um, we've had just so much fun with, um, again, more with Jim Fanning. We did favorite live-action Disney songs. Tammy Tucky Night. Covered uh, famous Disney attraction quotes um, that were just, I mean, that was just so much fun. We were laughing a ton. Um, more recently, I had composers like uh, Joel McNeely and orchestrator Stephen Bramson. It's been such a delight. I probably sound like a broken record, um, but it's been such a thrill. And I've seen how I've been able to expand my horizons along the way, uncover information that I don't know would have necessarily found a home elsewhere just based on who's you know what who's being interviewed and, and what's being covered and I anticipate for the coming years of notably Disney that this will continue this will continue in terms of this mix right there will always be some episodes focused more saliently on music some more so on books maybe a few random ones right like I did that. Uh, focus on the first year of Disney plus with uh, a gang of different Disney podcasters and guests it's just I I I can't fully say how much this is such a great outlet and I I hope you enjoy it Um, so thank you for indulging me in this uh, retrospective of sorts of the first hundred episodes and now we're going to transition to the art of Lightyear. And before I share my thoughts on The Art of Lightyear, which was recently published by Chronicle Books, let me offer a few words on the film itself, which you can now watch on Disney+. Plus. We all saw those headlines and recognized that the newest feature from Pixar Animation Studios, the first of the studio's productions to return to theaters in more than two years was Uh, for all intents and purposes a box office bomb. Its domestic earnings totaled to just around 120 million or so and roughly another hundred million more internationally. Now these numbers underscore the public's general confusion about what this film featuring a Toy Story lead character albeit with a new interpretation was all about. Now it may also reflect a subsection of the country that P- felt Pixar was politicizing this feature, which, while primarily about the uh, focused on the space origins, uh, Space Rangers origin story, there was a supporting character in in same sex relationship. You could clearly tell that. Now, one could contend its box office numbers were also paltry due to being sandwiched in between surprise mega blockbuster. Top Gun Maverick, and the final installment in the Jurassic World franchise. No matter how you justify it, for these reasons and perhaps others, Lightyear just failed to land an audience. And it bothers me that we commonly saw those news stories related to the Alicia character being in a same-sex relationship that oh, you know, it's perhaps not doing well because Top Gun Maverick's been such a hit and people are just seeing that and maybe similar audiences would be seeing Lightyear. Um, that why is this film focused on a Toy Story character, but it's not Toy Story, it's more adjacent. These were all very common critiques. And I think it's, in in many ways, these are all kind of invalid. Yes, there are some people who, uh, who may have some you know homophobic perspectives and may not see lightyear because of that but i would I would hope that that's a very very small um, subsect of the American public but we know that there's a lot of um, you know unfortunate um, animosity and, and hatred toward uh, minoritized individuals um, and while wow, lightyear was such an achievement for that factor and also having a racially diverse cast, much more so than we uh, have seen before. Um, I also would say that, you know, I think box office expectations were very high because it's related to Toy Story, even if not Toy Story, and that franchise has continually performed very well at the box office, um, with the more recent installments each earning more than a billion dollars worldwide. So, of course, people are thinking that, combined with A Pixar film returning to theaters of course this is going to do fantastically and you know why were so many people confused about what this movie was about I felt like it was pretty straightforward there's even a little title card at the beginning of Lightyear that indicates that this is the movie Andy would have seen that inspired him to want to purchase the Buzz Lightyear toy Um, but for some reason the, the marketing didn't quite make that clear enough and you know I feel like these three topics were so relentlessly focused on as reasons behind Lightyear's dismal performance. And sure, perhaps those could have been part of the reason why, but sometimes there's not any rhyme or reason. It's just unfortunate that it failed to land an audience. Um, But let's focus on how the film itself is a bit of a departure from the studio. Um, It it relies on emotional manipulation in the best way possible. Pixar is known for that, and perhaps manipulation is a bit of a strong word, but Pixar knows how to uh, wring out our emotions. Um, And and it boasts stunning animation. That is, uh, I think, a trademark of Pixar constantly raising the bar. But where Lightyear shifts gears, taking what I would say is a much darker and more serious tone than typical Pixar fare. Now, some could contend that recent features like Soul and Turning Red were more aligned with what adults may find uh, entertaining compared to children. Um, Lightyear offers a cerebral tone in tandem um, because it poses some existential questions about one's purpose and how you deal with regret and mistakes. And, you know, I feel like Pixar has been kind of edging in this territory of catering more for uh, adults. Um, in, in terms of the, the messaging and um, some of the themes and how it all plays out. And I feel like that it's just, uh, it's encouraging and it's positive. We need to see a variety of fare from the lighthearted to the more serious. And the, you know, bu- the Buzz Lightyear character, he feels immense guilt for his career mistakes having cost a whole community to colonize on a desolate p- planet and through employing various attempts to rectify those errors, he ends up engaging in a series of leaps forward in time, which compromises the relationships he has and a sense of stability. These are deep themes to be sure, and the narrative captures the anguish that this test pilot faces. His cat robot companion Socks, arguably the breakout star of the film, offers necessary comic relief in the midst of Buzz's trials and eventual quest with a brigade of haphazard honorary space rangers. The film inspires viewers to contemplate the impact of their decisions on others, as well as the idea of the grass not always being greener on the other side. And Lightyear's landscape is generally bleak, and it's absent of the dazzling array of colors that mark many Pixar features. So think about Finding Nemo and the Toy Story films. In many ways, it feels aligned with another space picture, Wall-E, which was a more serious film for the studio at the time. But the tone of the robot flick had a certain wistfulness that I think Lightyear lacks, and I don't think that's completely absent, but it's, it's not as salient. As for Lightyear's original score by Pixar and sci-fi film veteran at this point, Michael Giacchino, the heroic orchestral score feels very much aligned with the, with the space ranger's exploits. It has that very commanding uh, tone. That uh, you know, it's very much like the the Chris Evans character, Captain America. And surprisingly, I did not find myself humming any theme afterward, or thinking to myself in the middle of the film how incredible its score was. And I suppose further viewings may change my opinion on that front. But that is kind of a perfect segue to illustrate what is often definitive of great Pixar films, begging for multiple views for even enhanced enjoyment. With a couple of exceptions, and I'm looking at you Cars too, I have seen all Pixar films on at least two occasions, many of them in the five to ten or more range. (laughs) After watching Lightyear though, I didn't find myself begging to get back to the theater. That said, my appreciation of some Pixar features have seriously benefited from subsequent viewings, including The Incredibles, which I admit I was not in love with during the initial viewing. Um, But over time, it certainly did, and I'm glad for that. So time will only tell with Lightyear. With most movies, though, I grow deeper fondness when I learn about their developmental process, whether it be in the form of a documentary, uh, and there was that Beyond Infinity doc on Disney Plus that was quite good. Um, And it may also come in the form of a book like what I'm reviewing today. So let's transition to The Art of Lightyear, which uh, comes from Chronicle Books. That's Disney's long uh, go-to publishing outlet. Um, It's not owned by Disney, but Disney works with them quite a bit and they publish art books based on their animated releases. In a nutshell, this is a pretty standard example of what they produce. It's roughly 176 pages. It's glossy hardcover coffee table book. There's beautiful digital designs and other uh, types of depictions of the characters, the settings, and the vehicles. And my overall takeaway is that it's decent in what it aims to accomplish. And yet, akin to the film, that misses the mark in many ways. For instance, not completely satisfying for the viewer because it is slow and uh, that I would say some of the supporting characters uh, outside of Izzy, Alicia, and Socks are kind of blah. I kind of felt disappointed with the title, uh, with this book, I should say, and you might be wondering, well, why so Brett? Well, for one, though there are references to the story's development via a number of storyboard sequences scattered across the book, I didn't feel I could completely follow the film's plot in the book through the occasional blurbs of text provided by the filmmakers. In fact, there is very, very little in the way of text which compromises our appreciation of the strong level of technicality and artistry that were assembled to make this Pixar feature. And as a result, I didn't feel like I understood some basic context behind some of the visuals displayed here in the book. That bothers me as a reader. Clearly, this is an art book, not one that's meant to dive into all the nuances associated with the filmmaking process. I get it but that doesn't mean that there couldn't be some longer narrative and spaces to explain basic facts. Like who are some of the characters who are depicted in the book, but I just don't remember their names. And what factored into their clothing design, their hairstyle, physique, other essential elements that give us a sense of their personality and attributes. There are some very occasional pieces of information Uh, I know there's a page that has a few sentences on Alicia during that touching montage toward the film's beginning, but it's too, too limited in this book. Another element that bothers me beside the sheer absence of text across most pages is the redundancy of certain types of visuals, such as the different spacesuits the characters wear. And this harkens back to my prior critique of being disappointed with the limited contextual information behind the visuals on each page, and I would easily give up some of those uh, visuals uh, if they could create more space for text. Clearly, I'm a big reader and I love beautiful visuals. I just don't feel like the balance was quite there here. But let's focus on some of the positives and inspired pieces of knowledge I picked up from reading this book. And my favorite section of The Art of Lightyear focuses on the environments from the interior of the spacecraft to landscapes of those planets. That said, at times it does not feel like there's a ton of variation in the color scheme due to the overall musty milieu of these spaces, and hence I couldn't see a clear difference among particular places. One exception, perhaps the nicest example of differences, is a fold that shows Buzz's uh, spaceship um, on one page and Zerg's on the other. And there's a bunch of notes that demonstrate distinct aspects that distinguish them. But we aren't as fortunate with many other places in the book. And I want to give the team credit for designing evocative, foreboding landscapes that capture the hopelessness of being marooned. I just felt like that as a reader, someone consuming this, there was not as much variety um, to fully appreciate um, the uniqueness that some of these landscapes may have offered. As far as uh, some cool things within the text itself, I wanted to share a few facts and uh, cool pieces of information that I noticed. And it was actually Angus McLean, the director's love of sci-fi that helped inspire the feel of the film. And you have to credit his tendency to list out various ideas for sci-fi entertainment during his childhood for that. The Lightyear crew uh, took the notion of Deeply understanding space uh, seriously, uh, much in the same way that Pixar uh, projects in the past, you know, they go on these research trips. In this case, they visited NASA in Houston to explore the astronaut training process. I also loved the gallery of galactic weapons with fun names like Space Mace Grenades, Splat Bats, and Laser Spears. Who knew these objects had names? Thankfully, that's where that contextual information can make all the difference. Socks, our favorite cat friend, gets some attention through some funny hang in there posters. You probably know what those are. Uh, Certainly those trend uh, at different times. Building Lego versions of vehicles in Pixar animators' minds enabled the crew to translate those ideas into the film and one of them actually became part of an official Lego set. And for those interested in graphic design, there's a fascinating style guide, even if it's brief, that focuses on logos and other details featured throughout the picture. One of the warmest elements of the book was in the handful of anecdotes that detail the Lightyear crew experiences. Readers can immediately tell how much adoration those Pixar folks feel for one another. So bottom line, is the art of Lightyear worth a purchase? Unless you're an ardent fan of the feature who wants to own all of the merchandise associated with the production, I'd say this is probably a pass. There are some cool visuals and little tidbits that elevated my appreciation of what Lightyear aim to accomplish, though I still came away from this title feeling unfulfilled, largely due to the lack of text and limited variety of visuals compared to similar types of titles. Now, again, this is just my opinion, you don't have to fully agree on this, and I don't want to take anything away from the craftsmanship that the Pixar folks invested in the, in the film. I just feel like, in terms of the actual presentation of all this in the book, there were missed opportunities in terms of that lack of text, which is just very surprising, and that I just felt like uh, I, you know, I wasn't able to distinguish certain spaces because there wasn't a um, as much variety in, in the visuals that were being presented. Um, but I would say this is an exception to the rule, and I don't think this is a bad book. I would say it's mediocre, it, it does what it aims to do, but it, it, there's missed opportunities. And I would say the vast majority of art books from Chronicle Books I've been very, very pleased with over the years. Um, all that said, I do encourage you to check out Lightyear the film, which as I said, is available on Disney Plus. It's a very solid, albeit not spectacular, contribution to the Pixar fold of feature films that extends the world of Buzz Lightyear and directions that uh, we may not have been able to anticipate when the fictional toy, based on this fictional Space Ranger character, debuted 27 years ago. I am glad we all finally had the chance to witness the film that Andy would have seen in theaters, prompting him to fall in love with the toy that we also adore, and hopefully, uh, as more time passes and uh, maybe the, the, the human light year grows on me, I will have a greater appreciation for him too. Um, but I did very much uh, enjoy the film and uh, the vocal performances from Chris Evans, Kiki Palmer and company. So there you have it. This concludes the 100th episode of Notably Disney and I am excited about what the future holds as I continue engage, to engage in an array of interviews reviews fun conversations and likely some content that in between there somewhere so i appreciate you being part of this journey listeners thanks again for joining me on another episode of notably disney i invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review follow me on twitter at bnachman reports that's b-n-a-c-h-m-a-n reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.